podcast that longs to bring the church world and the art world a little closer together. My name is Matt Anderson. So glad you can join us for this week's episode. You know, some people are born way before their time. We have probably all heard that expression, but it truly only defines a small group of people a very small group of artists, and and usually it's only time and history that show uh, whether that is true of someone. Um, Sometimes there are artists whose methods and talent were just not fully appreciated until long after their passing. Um, There are, I think, a select few misunderstood artists who have flashed like lightning across the sky and then just as quickly left the scene before anyone, I think, could truly understand who they were, what they were experiencing, and even what they were doing. It's one of this very strange and elite group that I want to focus our attention uh, on this episode. And that's the artist Vincent Van Gogh. Now, unless you are into art history at all, there are probably two things you know about Vincent van Gogh. First, that he was a great painter and that he cut his ear off for some weird reason. Uh, but let's just say that really doesn't quite give one a full picture of the, uh, the complexity of this man and of this artist. So what I wanted to spend this episode doing is getting to know him a little bit better. Specifically, though, I want us to see how really both the church world and the art world missed it when it came to him, and what lessons we can learn from it, and uh, including from the artist himself. Um, Maybe some takeaways that some of us creatives might have if, if maybe we feel that we are misunderstood. So let's start in the church with Van Gogh, because that's really where it started for him. Um, And uh, for some of this background, I'm very thankful to author Makoto Fujimura and his book, Culture Care. Really some great background information here. Van Gogh was born in Holland in 1853. His father was a pastor. So from his earliest days, he grew up in the Dutch Reformed Church, and Vincent had a deep devotion to God and religion and theology. Um, As a boy, he was quite emotional. Um, Our our British friends would probably say he had high spirits. Uh, We Americans would probably say he was high strung. But this, along with a a very crippling lack of confidence and insecurity, would hamper him his entire life. So growing up a devoted and religious man, but also as a would-be artist, uh, it was something he picked up as a child and his mother in particular encouraged, he would sort of vacillate between art and the church as far as his life path and his calling. 
Um, early on as a very young artist, he became infatuated with a young lady. But when he expressed those feelings to her, she rejected him outright. And this would send him deeper into religious devotion. Um, often when he would be rejected by women, and it would happen frequently in his life, it would cause him to wonder if he was meant to serve the Lord fully as maybe a priest or a monk, uh, and that maybe he was not meant to be romantically entangled in any way. But he definitely wanted to follow in his father's footsteps in the Dutch Reformed Church and be a pastor. Uh, he attempted to study theology at the University of Amsterdam, but he failed the entrance exam. Undaunted, um, he then went to Belgium to undertake a three-month course um, at a Protestant missionary school, but he ended up failing that. Um, the church elders really did not affirm the calling that Van Gogh believed he had on his life. And I'm sure they just had no idea what to do with such an apparent mercurial personality because there was nothing subtle about Van Gogh. He was quite an intense, passionate individual to the point that most of the population did not know what to do with him. It was almost too much. Uh, it was it was almost uh, the concentrate and nothing watered down. So again, not giving up on doing kingdom of God work, Vincent decided to find another way to bring the gospel to other people. So he went to Belgium. He joined up with a, a Franciscan order there. He took a post as a missionary for the purpose of ministering to the miners who worked there. They were quite impoverished. Uh, it was a horrible existence for the men who worked there. And Van Gogh wanted to identify as much as he could with the people he was ministering to. So he did something that one just did not do back in those days. Um, back then, if you were a part of the priesthood or the religious class, there was a definite degree of separation. You, you tended to really live at a higher level. Uh, there was a lot of wealth associated with the ministry, <laughs> which certainly changed long before I came along. Uh, but Van Gogh would push the boundaries of that. And seeing the plight of people around him, one homeless man in particular, he decided to give up his comfortable lodging. He lived in a, in a sort of an apartment above a baker. He gave up that lodging to the homeless person and just began sleeping on straw. Well, this was kind of the final... Uh, the final move for him from church leader's standpoint. They just, they wouldn't have it. This was not the way that a man of God was supposed to behave. Uh, talk about before his time, right? <laughs> um, he was rejected from the assignment and they declared him to be, quote, unfit for the dignity of the priesthood. This would send Van Gogh on a volatile sequence of events that would end with his father temporarily committing him to a mental asylum. No one seemed to know what to do with Vincent Van Gogh, including Van Gogh himself. I mean, let's be fair to the people around him. No one had ever encountered anyone like him with this kind of extreme intensity. Uh, Van Gogh had only one setting. It was on 10 all the time. 
it was on high. <laughs> Whatever he did, he did with absolute maximum intensity. Um, I, I think it was this characteristic in particular that ended up repelling the very people he was trying to reach in his life, the people that he most wanted to connect to, and ended up doing the opposite. So once the door to the ministry had firmly and finally been slammed in his face, he then began to give himself fully to his art. Uh, but again, not without bumps and bruises, as it is really for, for any artist. Um, I think today, if he had been around, Vincent van Gogh probably would have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Uh, but of course, there was no mechanism in place at that time to diagnose, let alone treat and medicate such a condition. Um, so he just kind of went about life unregulated, at times very lucid, very in control, at times very the opposite. He could probably, if he looked back at his life, honestly, he could probably say that he just tried too hard. You know what I mean? Have you ever met someone who just tried too hard to be your friend? Um, someone you just met who just seemed to want to instantly be best friends. And of course, it usually sends people running the opposite direction. I think that was Van Gogh. I think he, I think he had no interest in going through the subtleties of relationship and the little hurdles that one passes over. He just wanted to instantly be all in. But unfortunately for him, that wasn't anybody else. Well, he never wanted to do art alone, and he would frequently write his brother. Many of his letters have survived. His brother, Theo, uh, we would look at it and pronounce it Theo, but um, Theodore. But he would write to his brother, who was an art dealer in Paris, frequently about his professional and personal struggles. But when he decided to fully devote himself to artistic craft, he went through the usual struggles of someone trying to make a name for himself. And along the way, his relational skills would once again be his undoing. On one occasion, his, um, his eyes were turned to another young lady, and she became the object of romance and infatuation for him. And upon letting her know that, and I'm sure in a very unsubtle way, she responded to him by saying, quote, no, nay, never. Now, if you're a guy, that's called three strikes and you're out. In 1886, he went to Paris to live with his brother, but to go more intensely into art education. And he was going to learn from the Impressionists who were gaining a lot of notoriety at the time. Uh, and there he met artists like Pizarro, uh, Claude Monet, and Paul Gauguin, who will play an interesting role in this story. He tried to copy their style as Impressionists, but he just couldn't quite replicate it. So he ended up sort of developing his own sort of unique style, and his brushstrokes ended up being, I would say, fittingly more intense. Um, 
there's no subtlety. When you look at a Van Gogh painting, you know exactly where the brush is going with sort of a thicker use of paint in many cases, vibrant colors, not so much the pastels of his peers. Well, two years later, in 1888, again, dialing it up to 10, Van Gogh had this idea. He wanted to move to the, to the south of France to uh, a city called Arles, and he wanted to have artists work together in community, and, and, and he found a place, and he would call it the Yellow House, and he wanted other artists to join him as they created art together. Uh, but his impressionist colleagues were, of course, put off by Van Gogh, so most would not join him, but Paul Gauguin decided to give it a try. Uh, but of course, Van Gogh's intensity and really his unhealthy lifestyle, I mean, he drank to excess, he, uh, he was a nonstop smoker, he slept very little, he wanted to work all day and then talk all night. Um, he, he received very little sleep, and it took its toll on Gauguin. He just could not keep that going. Uh, and after one explosive incident one day, Gauguin decided to leave, and he, he walked out of the Yellow House. Uh, and Van Gogh, afraid of even more rejection in his life, pursued him with an open razor. Now, I, I don't know what that means, if he was in the midst of shaving or he was going to threaten who knows what. But there was sort of a tussle, and he was stopped by Gauguin. And in the process of that, Van Gogh ended up cutting off part of his earlobe. And that's part of the story that we think we know, but that's really how it happened. Well, it was just one more rejection and one too many, I think, for Van Gogh. It was a final crushing blow for him. And he would spend much of the rest of his life, uh, which was only a couple years, uh, in an asylum. In 1890, when he was um, back out in civilization, his life would tragically end from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the chest. It would take more than a day for him to succumb to his wounds. His brother was able to arrive uh, before Vincent died, and according to Theo, Vincent's last words were, the sadness will last forever. Boy, what a tragic end. And we still may not have ever known his art had it not been for his sister-in-law. You see, his brother Theo would die a year later, and his new bride, Johanna, was suddenly bequeathed all these hundreds of Vincent's paintings. Not knowing what to do with them, thankfully, she kept them and held on to them and was able to put them in small exhibitions over the next number of years. And within a few decades... His painting and his craft had found a huge following, and of course, the rest is art history. But Vincent van Gogh only sold one painting during his life, and he would live in poverty and lived off the money that his brother would send him, which he would spend mostly on art supplies, coffee, and cigarettes. Van Gogh could easily be described as a mad genius, but I think it also shows the, the deep wounding that rejection can have in our life. And if you're an artist, boy, you have to deal with rejection because it, it is almost a common feeling. And we all have to deal with rejection on some level. Fortunately, spiritually, we have access to someone 
who knows all about it as well. This is a statement from the National Football League. Hello, my name is Harvey Shank. I am the newly appointed Vice President of Fairness for the National Football League. Due to recent events in our country, our office, in consultation with the Commissioner, owners, and Players Association are making some important proposals and changes to our league, effective the first week of the regular season. It is our desire to have a game in which all our players are treated equally and with the proper degree of fairness across the board. These initiatives will include, number one, we will no longer be playing the Star Spangled Banner before kickoff. We trust this will alleviate all the conflicts of whether to kneel or not. In its place, we are offering teams the choice of other songs to play as a rallying anthem to convey their disgust for America. They include American Idiot, Born in the USA, Ain't That America, and The Hokey Pokey. But let me be clear that in using the Hokey Pokey that we are not requiring players to kneel, put their right foot in or out, let alone shake it all about. Number two, home teams will no longer be specified by white uniforms. From here on out, white will no longer be permissible as a featured uniformed color. It is permissible to use it as a trim color, but nothing more than an accent to other colors. Three, we will also be changing the colors of sidelines and yard markers on the field. As we have fully come to realize our reliance on whiteness in every aspect of the product we have on the field, we will be changing these to a neon yellow color or possibly pink so we can virtue uh, um, advocate for breast cancer research all season, not only in October. Number four, we have become aware that our white bias has unconsciously seeped its way into our football officiating crews. As we signified the head referee with a white hat and the subservient referees with black caps. This was inadvertent and we apologize to all those offended. We will be switching the colors of the caps immediately. Number five, from this point forward, we are urging our football teams as well as the media to refrain from identifying the space inside the 20-yard line as the red zone. 
Though no complaints have been registered from the Native American community, we feel it is our duty to make them aware of what they should be offended by. Number six, we have decided to do a scrubbing of past NFL players in order to properly align them with modern values. For instance, legendary kick returner Billy White Shoes Johnson will now be known as Billy Shoes Johnson. We will be removing the mean from Joe Green's name as this depicts a racial stereotype we no longer want to be identified with. Tight end great Dave Casper will have his nickname Ghost changed as the implication is that a white ghost is automatically a friendly ghost. Rest assured that if the Raiders were going to stay in Oakland, that their home stadium would have to change their nickname from the Black Hole for reasons that I should not have to explain. Also, former Kansas City running back Christian Okoye will no longer be referred to as the Nigerian Nightmare, as it impugns an entire country of Africa as having nightmare status. This is going to be a long, intensive endeavor, so be patient with us as we rewrite football history. Finally, we are encouraging a number of teams to consider changing their name, which we believe could be considered offensive. Not only with the Redskins, but the Kansas City Chiefs, the Dallas Cowboys, who are frequently seen as the enemy of Native Americans, even in children's games, the Houston Texans because of their voting habits, the New England Patriots uh, ignoring our country's true founding, the San Francisco 49ers who pillaged the land for the sole purpose of finding wealth and riches, and the New Orleans Saints for their overtly religious imagery. We are also asking the Cleveland Browns to do some serious soul-searching. Please understand that these small cosmetic changes should in no way prohibit our fans from enjoying the game that we love. So have a good season, everybody, until we change things again. So let's look at some takeaways from the life of Vincent van Gogh for a moment. And I think there are a number of them from different perspectives. Geniuses often do not exist in traditional garb. They often come wrapped in very unique and odd packages. And what happens with people of this nature is they are usually dismissed so quickly that few take the opportunity to dig beneath the surface at maybe something incredibly special beneath that needs to be nurtured and, um, and grown. And maybe as I'm saying this, you're thinking of 
someone in your life who fit that category. Um, some of the smartest and most brilliant people who have ever lived were, were just plain misfits. I know artists get that more than most people do. Even unsuccessful artists can be <laughs> just plain old misfits. And again, that's why sometimes the church can be a very odd fit. Because everything feels so streamlined. Everything feels so um, manufactured and, and um, assembly-lined to death. Even though that really isn't the case, because the Lord sees us as individuals. You know, you think of John the Baptist. You think of the prophets of the Old Testament and some of the wild things they were called to do. I think it was Ezekiel who was called to lay on one side, just to to lay on one side of his body for, I want to say, months and months and months at a time. I don't have the figure in front of me. Just strange things the Lord would uh, call them to do. John the Baptist, uh, you know, he, he's wearing very different clothing from most people. He's wearing sort of like animal hide, and he's, he's eating locusts and wild honey. And here's this crazy man in the wilderness saying all these crazy things about repenting for the kingdom of God is at hand. There are just folks who don't really live by the conventional rules and not because they're jerks. It's just the only way they know how to do it. So I think that that should help us in life. And especially those of us in church, we're going to, we're going to run into people who just don't fit any of our programs any of our ministry efforts. And it can frustrate a pastor. It can frustrate church leaders. It can frustrate family members. And we just don't know what to do with them. I think the best thing to do is, the number one, just to make sure they know Jesus and, and know him personally. And then give them the space to be them. Don't, don't see their unorthodox ways as some kind of repudiation of you or what you taught them as, as parents or as pastors. There are just some folks who have to walk a very different path. Uh, we just have to look past that obvious outer shell of eccentricity to what may be lurking beneath, because we can really miss out on some amazing people. And the church could really be foregoing a blessing when, when we don't know what to do with someone like a Van Gogh. I'll put it in a more spiritual sense. We need the discernment of the Holy Spirit as we encounter people in life. And it's, oh man, the way we prejudge, right? Um, and I know we often put that in a racial context, and it's true. But we really just judge people in general by the way they look. And the people who look like they have it together, who look like they fell off a magazine cover, I mean, they have no troubles whatsoever for the most part in life. But for those who do not fit that at all, just out of fear, we kind of stay away. Um, but I think if we can live with the discernment of the Holy Spirit, I think he has this way of us connecting to people like this so that they don't feel like outliers. They don't feel isolated. They don't feel like they have to leave the church to find freedom. The church should be the place where they find it. 
And if we're operating in discernment, I think the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us about certain people, and we can sort of be an advocate for them, uh, much like the Apostle Paul. Paul was a wild man, and uh, and again, he was very like Van Gogh. Everything he did was at level 10. And so when he purports to have this conversion, nobody wants to have anything to do with him. They just think this is a, a, a final plot to capture all the church leaders. But Barnabas has the discernment of the Holy Spirit and says, well, guys, I think this is legit. This is somebody that we should not give up on. Can you imagine what would have happened if the original church leaders had told the Apostle Paul what later ones had told Van Gogh? My word, what we would have missed. You just never know what package of genius will be found in. For some reason, I just always seem to love misunderstood people because I think I was one and still am on a, on a number of levels. Um, I'm not trying to play the victim here. It's just, <laughs> you just realize it after a while and you accept it. You just go, okay, people just are not going to get me for the most part. We all struggle with rejection though. It's really one of the deepest wounds of life. Some of us encounter that very early, and we lose parents either through divorce or uh, death or neglect or some other reason. And those of us who had uh, who have had that early can really start to become hypersensitive to it, and we can then throw that rejection upon the Lord and eventually feel like He is the one rejecting us. But I want you to remember, if you feel that way, if, if you have some of those Van Gogh sort of feelings in the quietness of your life, and you feel as if you are misunderstood, that you are constantly rejected, that you can't seem to do that human relationship thing right, I want you to remember that your Savior knows how you feel. He lived that kind of life. He was not a traditional rabbi in any sense of the word. He said things no one else had said. He carried himself in his ministry. The people he chose around him were on the reject pile of everybody else. Scripture even tells us he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief." If you'll let me put it in these terms, there was no greater genius than Jesus as he walked this earth. He knew better than anybody what it was to be rejected. He was rejected by his own people. When he would not perform for them, when he would not play according to the script that they believed the Messiah should be, they turned on him. But thankfully, it was all in his plan. His ultimate plan was that he came to die. He displayed forgiveness and grace through his life, even against those who rejected him. And he extends the same invitation to you, the misunderstood one, the rejected one, the one who maybe wonders if what you're creating and making won't truly be appreciated until after you're gone. I want you to fall into the arms of the one who was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. When we feel rejected, we we need to return to the holy place of acceptance that never leaves. 
and that's the arms of the Lord. He is ever waiting to embrace you, to say he understands you. In fact, you're made in his image. He created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, including with the talent you have. Fame is not evidence of his blessing. His crucifixion and resurrection are the evidence of his blessing over your life. Well, I want to thank you for being a part of the Madcast this week. Our theme and interlude music is by Sound of Fusion. We hope to see you again soon. This has been a production of Monumental Ministries. If you'd like more information about books and resources, go to my website at mattministry.com. Hey, thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time.